Good evening. Good evening, comrades. I think we're going to get started. So thank you for coming and welcome to the World Transformed session on a movement in government. Uh, my name is Joe Guinan. I'm with the Democracy Collaborative, which is a think do tank based in Washington, D.C., working on building the democratic economy, also a contributing editor of Renewal Journal. And I'm going to be chairing tonight and framing a little bit the conversation that we're going to have. I'll introduce that topic and the panel in just a moment, but I've also been asked to remind everyone here of the ground rules uh, of the world transformed. Here uh, at TWT, we are an open, vibrant, democratic, participatory, plural, and tolerant movement that wants to have a comradely discussion. I'm sure these won't be uh, issues that we'll have any problems with tonight, but just to warn everyone that bigotry of any kind uh, will be challenged and to keep it comradely, please. So our topic tonight is really uh, a very profound and important one about preparedness for government and the challenges that we as the Corbyn movement are likely to face in bringing about what's needed here in this country, which is a radical, deep transformation of Britain's political economy from top to bottom, so that we can have an economy for the many and not the few. Now, a lot of work is going to be needed to win a general election, to put Jeremy Corbyn in Downing Street. It's going to require massive grassroots mobilizations. It's going to require effective campaign strategies. We're not really here to talk about those tonight. Tonight, what we're here to talk about is a different question. It's the question of when we win, what happens then? What happens when we've waded through the media attacks, the threats of splits, the establishment smears, all the challenges and difficulties we're going to face on the path to a Labour uh, general election victory? And then, finally, with Corbyn and Downing Street, we probably start to come up against our real enemies, which will be the international power of finance capital, the British state, and other themes that will emerge tonight. We're really up against what R.H. Tawney once called the oldest and toughest plutocracy in the world. And so we really want to focus people's minds tonight on what it's going to take for this movement, not to get elected, it's very important, but actually to bring about the transformative changes that we need. Getting elected is probably the easy part. Now, we can learn a lot from our history. Uh, we can look around uh, both recent and distant examples of the left in government. And these can inform us and caution us about some of the challenges that we're likely to face on the road ahead. On the one hand, we have two great precedents in this country in the post-war era for transformative change, lasting change, change that set the terms for subsequent decades from both the left and the right. We have the Atlee government, we also have the Thatcher government. We're still today living as ordinary people in this country with the benefits of the Atlee government and still paying the price for the Thatcher government. And that's the order of magnitude of change we need to be thinking about. Not just two terms in office for Corbyn, but two terms that actually set the terms for decades to come. So we'll be hearing a little bit from our panelists about the transformative shifts that were required and, and the strategies that, were that took place to make that happen. There are lessons from these examples. Next, we'll also be thinking about other left governments around the world and their experiences and what we have to learn from them. There are all manner of things uh, that they face, capital flights, exchange crises, inflation, and investment strike, whether deliberately administered punishment beatings or just market reactions, all of these things are possible. Hopefully, of course, we won't face what Iambi faced in Chile, but there are other cautionary examples to look at. 
I've been looking recently a lot at Mitterrand and the experience in France in the early 80s where there was a program not too dissimilar to our own and a real attempt to put it into, into place and that was beaten back by a wall of capitalist opposition. What can we learn from that? There's also the examples closer to home of Wilson and Callahan and what happened with exchange crises, with deflation, with the, the experience of having a government with a radical program in some cases blown off course by these forces. So today, some of these models apply, some of them don't. Um, there are certainly differences. We're under a different international currency regime. We don't have to defend an exchange rate in the same way. But I think it would probably be foolish for us not to expect that some manifestation of these forces uh, will actually come after us, in the words that John McDonnell used um, at the World Transport last year. So, the elephant in the room in terms of other left governments uh, around the world and what we can learn from them, um, and literally in the room, although it isn't an elephant, is the experience of Syriza in Greece and the lessons that it may hold for a Corbyn government. So in, in that regard, we're very, very fortunate to have with us tonight uh, Demetrius Zanakopoulos. Was that good? I've been trying all day. Good enough. All right. Demetrius from now on. Minister of State and Government Spokesperson for the Government of Greece under the current Syriza administration. And we're going to ask uh, Demetrius to speak first um, and tell us about what he thinks the lessons are for this movement and for the Corbyn government that we're all hoping for. Next, we're going to turn to Christine Berry, my colleague uh, at the, the Next System Project, where she's a fellow, formerly Principal Director at the New Economics Foundation, and now a researcher and writer on radical economics based in Manchester. In the interest of full disclosure, I should say that Christine and I have just written a book on many of these themes, which should be out uh, in the spring next year. People get ready from OR Books. A little free advertising, sorry about that. Uh, Christine's going to tell us about what we can learn about the neoliberal experience and how they brought about lasting change through their own methods, the consequences of which we're all still living with um, today. After that, we're going to turn to Laura Parker, uh, Momentum's National Coordinator, who can talk about the role of the movement and the movement in government. John McDonnell has said, when we go into government, we all go into government together. And so we'll need to consider what it actually means to have a radical reforming Labour government powered by the movement itself and what we can do today to build the strength of ties and the trust that's going to be required for that movement to support that government. Last but not least, uh, we'll have Paul Mason, who needs little introduction. He's a radical journalist and commentator who has brought us continuous news and analysis from the front lines of today's domestic and international struggles and whose insights and views on strategic and political questions are always interesting and always challenging. Then we want to leave time for lots of discussion, for questions, debate, um, so I'll ask our speakers to keep it relatively tight, 10 minutes or so, um, and, and then we'll move to open discussion. So without further ado, uh, let's turn to our comrade from Greece, Demetrius. Thank you. and uh, moreover the experiences of uh, Syriza 
the experiences of a very difficult three and a half years in government uh, will be helpful for what you're trying to do here, which uh, you need to know that we're watching with uh, great interest and with inspiration. Um, what uh, I was thinking is that uh, all of you are right now uh, in the situation that we were in 2013-2014. You're in your own age of heroes, in a way, so to say. Uh, things are going uh, are not going to be uh, that easy when uh, hopefully you get elected. Uh, what I will try to uh, narrate here is a brief uh, historical um, uh, following of situations uh, after the Greek crisis. Of course, the Greek crisis was one of the uh, hardest um, uh, episodes of the global financial crisis. You are not into such a situation right now, but you need to know the way that the political elites and the financial elite and the global and European capital um, actually addressed the Greek issue when, when uh, Syriza got elected and tried to negotiate an exit of the so-called memoranda. I don't, I don't know if you are familiar with this. Uh, with his name, the memorandum is the a way that, that the name for the structural and fiscal adjustment program uh, programs that uh, were imposed in Greece uh, since uh, 2010. And let's start from this uh, date. It was the spring of 2010 when the Greek bond uh, skyrocketed and uh, had a yield of 7 to 7.5% which means that uh, the Greek economy could not, the Greek state could not uh, borrow anymore in order to repay its debt. Uh, so there were two possibilities open. The first possibility was uh, for the Greek economy to default. We don't know uh, what would uh, happen then if the Greek economy had defaulted back in 2010. Or, um, the, 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 the Greek government, the then Greek government, had to agree to a program with the IMF, the European uh, Commission, uh, the European Central Bank, and the ESM, which was which did not exist back then, uh, but uh, it had to agree with the Euro eurozone countries for a loan which was around 120 billion euros. Uh, in order for Greek economy to be able to pay its debts because we couldn't borrow from the financial markets. So the, what was the exchange for this loan of 120 billion euros? It was uh, the so-called memorandum. Uh, it was a very harsh political program of uh, fiscal adjustment and structural reforms, actually a very deeply um, uh, a deeply neoliberal program with, uh, which had one and only one uh, goal uh, to uh, produce internal devaluation that is to uh, without us having to without Greek economy having to uh, de uh, actually devaluate its currency to be able 
to uh, <clears throat> regain its competitiveness. This is the jargon of the European uh, of the European mechanisms, and uh, be able to uh, adjust fiscally and so on and so forth. This was the central idea of the fiscal adjustment program of the memorandum. This situation during uh, for the next four years, 2010 to 2014. Uh, led to this 27.9% of unemployment with uh, the unemployment uh, between youth reaching a 60% uh, back in 2014. Uh, we had uh, wage reductions uh, back in 2012 in one night, 22% reduction for the minimum wage and 32% reduction for the minimum wage of the young people, that was back in 2012. Um, this happened in one day. Uh, we had the notification uh, of the collective bargaining also in one day. With, uh, with, uh, uh, we had no collective bargaining in Greece uh, until the 21st of August 2018. We managed to restore them, but this is the second. Um, this has to do with what we try to do as CIRISA. Uh, and uh, other things, uh, amongst which was the deterioration of the welfare state uh, with a reduction of around 200% for uh, the spending in health and, uh, and, uh, uh, and also for schools and universities. Uh, Anyway, this created a huge political and social turmoil in Greece. This led to the uh, transformation of the political scene and the balance of power. Syriza came into the front um, together with the movements of the, of the squares and uh, on May uh, 2012 we managed to become the major opposition. Then. On uh, January 2015, we managed to become the government. Uh, you need to understand that we are party of uh, communist origin. We used to have three to four uh, percent through the, um, the 80s, the 90s, and the O's. And uh, in one night, we ended up being the major opposition. And after three years, we became the government. So the whole idea back in 2015 was this: we wouldn't, we didn't want, and the and the Greek people didn't want to exit the eurozone, didn't want to exit the European Union, uh, which would be uh, this could be a very uh, interesting conversation, but I don't think that I should go into that right now. Uh, <clears throat> so what we tried to do was to negotiate with our creditors to try to explain and to try to fight, uh, actually. Uh, in order for the, those austerity programs to come to an end and, uh, and uh, for us to be able to implement our own program which had nothing to do with the memoranda of 2020-2014. So what was the answer of the financial capital, what was the answer of the European institutions and the IMF back then? Uh, I don't know if you followed the Greek negotiations from January 2015 to July 2015. Uh, the answer was financial asphyxiation. Uh, that is, uh, we weren't able to actually borrow from the markets in order to, in order to pay our debt. So we were always uh, on the precipice because we had to 
um, uh, every two months we had to face a new bond maturing and we had the uh, and we were in the dilemma are we gonna pay for the bond or are we gonna let it default which would cause a cross default and then uh, what is called in the financial jargon acceleration the uh, whole of the Greek debt would default this is called cross default and then uh, all our creditors would demand all their money at uh, the exact uh, moment that we didn't pay for, uh, for, a, for a sovereign bond. Uh, so this would cause the whole financial and economic and social system in Greece to deteriorate. So we had to face this dilemma again and again and again during the, our first two months. On the 5th of June, if I'm not mistaken, of 2015, we decided to do the, uh, the very difficult step of defaulting to the IMF. We were the first government and the first country in the history of uh, Europe to actually take this very difficult decision and uh, we actually defaulted to the IMF. Uh, this is for those who actually think that Syriza didn't go, did not go to the end did not try uh, until, you know, the, the, the absolute uh, limits of its potential to negotiate with the creditors, then the answer was even the answer from the European institutions and the European governments uh, were, uh, was even harder against us. Uh, so, um, the financial asphyxiation actually tightened even more uh, and we were every second day faced with the dilemma are we gonna be able to pay wages and pensions tomorrow or not? And uh, I wish that uh, none of you face this dilemma uh, in uh, any of your, uh, actually, uh, in any of your days because uh, right now uh, when you abstractly refer to that you cannot understand how major such a move would be. That is, the uh, pensioner going to the ATM and not having its pension there, saying zero. The public sector worker going to the ATM to get its wage, uh, his wage or her wage, and saying zero there. This was the dilemma with which the Greek government uh, had to, uh, this was the dilemma that the Greek government had to address during the summer of 2015. Anyway, we decided uh, after this very difficult night on the 12th of July not to default, not to cause this cross default and acceleration of our bonds and uh, we made a compromise with our creditors and we actually agreed with a program that was not our own. We had for three years to implement uh, difficult policies, uh, policies that were not actually <coughs> uh, planned uh, or uh, planned uh, by, by us, but they were planned by the European institutions. At the same time, we had the opportunity to um, actually uh, create a mix of policies which had nothing to do with the policies between 2010 and 2014. To give you but one example, the total uh, cuts uh, since uh, 20, uh, in the first four years of the memoranda was 
there were 67 billion euros, with the Greek GDP being 180 billion euros, that is 35% of our GDP. Um, uh, during uh, the last three years, we had to uh, implement cuts of around 3% of our GDP, which is around 5 billion, but at the same time, with this very tight, tightened fiscal situation, we managed to do other things. What are the things that we tried to do, even though we were so pressed from this European and uh, global financial institutions, uh, uh, from the situation that they created, actually, and the financial asphyxiation into which we are. Um, we managed to... Uh, we took unemployment to 27%. Right now, unemployment is at 19%. We're not celebrating this, but in uh, three years, to be able to reduce unemployment by uh, eight points and having 350,000 more jobs is something which is important. But the major thing that we did is that we actually um, uh, put uh, labor at the epicenter of our uh, focus. Uh, as I said, on the 21st of August, we managed to restore uh, collective bargaining. Right now, we have an institutional framework of collective bargaining after nine years, which may be even more progressive than in the most uh, countries uh, in the European Union. We managed to restore the favorability principle and the extension, and the extension principle. And, uh, during the last uh, four or five weeks, uh, we have been able to, uh, to extend uh, eight uh, co collective uh, bargaining agreements, which led to wage increases to more than 150,000 workers in uh, Greece for the first time after 10 years of recession. Uh, so we managed to do this. The third thing that we did is that we uh, gave universal access to uh, those who uh, were uninsured and uh, universal access to the healthcare system to all the uninsured people, which is a, a, a major intervention if you think that uh, 1.5 million people were actually unemployed when we uh, took government. 1.5 million people. Um, uh, into 2015. Maybe you cannot understand why uh, 1.5 million is so important, but I need to remind you that Greece has 10 million people. Uh, so 1.5 million people were unemployed when our whole population is... Uh, yes, yes. Uh, right now, we are actually managed to exit in a clear way the memoranda. The situation has not... Um, uh, of course, the, 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 the crisis has not ended. We have still uh, very many things to do, uh, but uh, I think that the Syriza experience is uh, quite important for you to study uh, in order for you to be able to know what awaits you if, and this is of course our, um, uh, our hope and our uh, deep belief, if Jeremy Carmen becomes the Prime Minister of Great Britain, which I hopefully will be uh, the case after two years. Thank you very much.
So as Joe said, um, I just finished writing a book with him on these things, so I'm going to try and give you a bit of a sneak preview of what is going to be available in all good bookshops next spring. Um, just as a get my excuses in early, not only six months pregnant, but also full of cold and slightly losing my voice. Um, so I'm hoping that my voice is going to hold out <laughs> until the end of the session, but please bear with me. Um, so I just want to offer a few reflections um, based on some of the history I've been looking into on um, what it takes to achieve transformative change um, of the kind that we want to, the kind that Joe was talking about in government, and particularly the kind of relationship between the mass movement and the government um, in achieving the kind of change that we want to see through corporatism. Just to check, it sounds to me like there's a real echo on this mic. Is that, is that just where I'm sat? No? Okay, great. Um, and I think, you know, since the 2008 crisis, there's been this real revival of interest in, um, in this question, what does it take to achieve systemic change, and particularly looking back at the example of neoliberalism um, and the Montpellerin society in particular, many of you may have heard of, has become a bit of a byword for how the neoliberals achieved this. You know, so this was a kind of secretive society set up by Friedrich von Hayek, a neoliberal economist, in 1947 at a summit in the Swiss Alps. Uh, went on to ban lots of think tanks and became one of the main ways that the neoliberals kind of kept their ideas alive and propagated them so that when the crisis hit in the 70s they were ready to take advantage. And the story after 2008 was this is what we haven't been doing basically, you know, we were not ready to take advantage when the 2008 crisis hit, etc, etc. Um, and I think there's a huge amount of truth in that um, and a huge amount to learn from that. But I think we've reached a point now where, you know, events have moved on and we need to look to new historical parallels um, for what we need to achieve as a movement now. Uh, we need to go beyond the Montpellerin Society. And I think the Montpellerin Society is a kind of imperfect analogy for the task that faces us now for three main reasons which I want to talk about. Um, the first is that you know, the neoliberal project was essentially an elite project as opposed to a democratic project, right? So their kind of tactics and strategies were necessarily also elite tactics and strategies. It was very much about kind of uh, disseminating ideas amongst a very, very small group of powerful people um, so that they were ready to basically parachute those people into power when the crisis hit. Uh, and that's very different from Corbynism today, right? So some of you may have read John McDonald's article in New Socialist recently, uh, which was titled, When We Go Into Government, We All Go Into Government Together. Um, and the idea behind this is that really the transformation that Corbynism is seeking to achieve is really the democratization of the economy. And if the ends are democratic, then the means must also be democratic, right? So we also need a radical democratisation of society and of politics. Um, and that means that, on the one hand, you know, for the leadership, should it get into power and take the reins of the state, um, its role is, is not just to kind of pull those levers in a different direction, but to radically democratise the state, to change the way that the state functions, uh, to use those levers to empower and to build sources of power outside the state. Um, and for the movement, it means that the role of the movement is not just to be the kind of foot soldiers that get a Corbyn government elected, right? It's kind of the other way around. Like the movement is not a means to an end of a Corbyn government. The Corbyn government is a means to an end of um, enabling us to, to achieve such a democratic, transformative change. And so that sort of implies a different self-conceptualization, really, of the movement, of sort of what its role is and the kind of things that it's there to do. And the second reason that I think the Montpellier Society is an imperfect analogy for where we are now is just the stage that this project is at and that we find ourselves now. Right? As I said, I think events have moved on. Right? And that's not at all to say that I think we've solved all of the problems that the Montpellier Society solved for the neoliberals. Right? We are still trying to backfill a huge generational deficit 
of new radical thinking on the left um, and to inject that thinking into powerful places and that's a huge task that's still to be done um, but the reality is that you know uh, we're no longer in that place we seem to be after 2008 where it really looked as though the waters had closed over the crisis that was it for the left for another generation and we were sort of waiting for the next crisis and the next opportunity for change now suddenly we find ourselves in this position where you know, we, we could have a corporate government almost at any moment, it's, it's not implausible. Um, and so we really need to be studying the next phase of the neoliberal project, which is you know, less the kind of 40s, 50s, 60s, um, which is the Montpellier era, and more the kind of 70s, uh, where they were really kind of strategizing and preparing for power. Um, and there are two people in particular that I think need to become bywords for how the neoliberals did that, that whose names we all need to know, the way that we probably most of us know by X name. I drink some water before I say anymore. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll run out of steam. Um, and the first of those is a guy called Nicholas Ridley, and the second is a guy called Lewis Powell. Um, and Nicholas Ridley wrote a report for Thatcher in 1977, I think it was, called the, pa um, called the, the Ridley Report, which was essentially a battle plan for privatisation. Um, it was a real kind of hard headed look at which industries were the union strong, which industries were they weak. If a Conservative government came to power, what would it be able to privatise straight away? What would it need to kind of build its, its power and its forces before it could take on? Uh, in particular, which of the unions were so powerful that they needed to find other ways of weakening and, and eroding that union power before they could try and privatise? Um, obviously, the biggest case of point being the coal miners. And there is a whole section in the Ridley Report about how they plan to kind of erode and um, destroy the power of the unions to the point where they could actually win a battle with the coal miners, which obviously they eventually did, uh, which uh, sectors and which public sector institutions were so popular or so deeply entrenched that they couldn't privatise them straight away and had to, I think they do actually use the word privatise by stealth, including the NHS. Like it's all there, it's all there in 1977, I really recommend reading it. Um, and I think in terms of the way Corbyn government, future Corbyn government needs to be thinking about, you know, uh, the task ahead, moving beyond sort of high level visions, and, you know, it's, it, we shouldn't underestimate how far we've come that we actually have some high-level visions right now. A few years ago, we were all bemoaning the fact that we're so used to saying what we're against and we don't know what we're for. I think we do now start to have an idea of what we're for, but the question is, how do we make it happen? Um, and Ridley is a really good precedent to look at for that. And from the movement's point of view, I think uh, Lewis Powell and the Powell Memorandum, which was a document that he wrote for the US Chambers of Commerce, uh, is also really worth a read. Um, so this was a document that basically set out a blueprint for a strategy and a battle plan for um, the forces of American enterprise to push back against what they saw as an attack on the free enterprise system um, through the media, through academia, through politics, through the courts. And I think what's interesting about that is the way that they really assess their own strengths and weaknesses and also try and learn from their enemies. So a lot of the tactics that are recommended in the Powell Memorandum, which US corporate lobbyists went on to use with very great effect, they were very explicitly learning from the civil rights movement, from other radical left movements of the time, saying things like, we need to be making much greater use of the courts, we need to be taking legal challenges and using that to push our agenda, for example. Um, and I think that's a good precedent, perhaps, for you know, what the mass movement of the left needs to be doing now. You can get kind of where we're strong, where we're weak, and where we can learn from our enemies. And I think the other thing to say about all of this is that um, these kind of shifts are necessary, kind of, messy uh, and you know, radically uncertain. I, think it's, I don't want to overstate the extent to which there are these kind of sinister figures pulling the strings 
behind the scenes who had this perfectly laid out plan which they then went on to execute and whilst encountering no obstacles whatsoever. I think it's really easy to look back at the neoliberal revolution um, and for it to look like that, but it certainly didn't look like that to the people that were inside it at the time, to the extent that uh, an advisor to Thatcher in her first term called Sir John Hoskins, um, who again I really recommend reading some of his stuff, he's quite a fascinating character, uh, in 1983, towards the end of her first term, he could write articles and give speeches basically bemoaning the complete lack of strategy in the Conservative Party uh, and how, you know, the, the real task ahead was transforming our political economy and Thatcher hadn't even scratched the surface of that and where was the strategic thinking going on that was going to enable this to be achieved, which is, you know, very far cry from the way that we tend to look back at how, how the neoliberals uh, went about things today. Um, and on the one hand, I think that should be somewhat reassuring for us, right, because it's, it's easy for us to overstate how all-powerful and how, um, you know, successful the neoliberals were and to regard ourselves as being sort of slightly shabolic underdogs by comparison. And I think that's not really, you know, if you actually look at the history, that's not really how history works. You know, these things are always um, messy and underdetermined. But on the other hand, it means that the movement does need to be prepared, right, that, that this is a long-term project. It's not going to be achieved overnight there will be setbacks and compromises along the way. Um, and I think that requires a real shift in mindset on the left, you know, from a mindset that's very used to opposition and to oppositionism, um, to a mindset that's about building power and really engaging with the strategic realities um, of what it takes to build that power and to achieve change. You know, asking the kind of questions Ridley asked, what is possible today, what's not possible today? And if it's not possible, what do we need to do today to make it possible tomorrow, right? And I think that also requires the movement to kind of chart a path in its relationship with the leadership between the two sort of default tendencies on the left of, on the one hand, sort of uncritical tribal loyalty and support, um, and on the other hand, this kind of purist abandonment of the project at the first whiff of compromise or the first whiff of a setback, right, that, you know, any compromise is a betrayal, any politician that makes a compromise is a sellout. The debate the movement needs to be equipped to have is whether a given compromise is the right one, you know, in the service of the long-term project, um, and holding the, the leadership to account for that um, and for its strategy, and, and whether its strategy is really delivering the change that we want to see. And I think that's especially important given the third reason why the Mont Pelerin Society isn't necessarily um, or has limits as a useful parallel for us today, which is, you know, because neoliberalism wasn't an elite project, uh, it didn't have one of the major problems that we have today, which Joe alluded to, and I think uh, maybe Paul will, will talk about a bit more, um, which is it's really going to piss off a lot of very powerful people, right? A lot of powerful elites, which again is not, you know, I think we shouldn't underestimate how marginalised the neoliberals actually were before they came to power, right? The unions were very powerful. Thatcher was marginalised in her own party for a long time. Um, neoliberals were marginalised in universities still in the 1970s, so it's not to overstate that, but it remains the case that we are trying to take on some of the most powerful economic interests in the world, really, right? And there's going to be a reaction and a backlash to that. Um, and one, you know, one way of dealing with that is to say, well, we need to kind of try and appease those interests, or at least um, avoid an all-out confrontation with them until we are strong enough to have it. And that, that's potentially a perfectly reasonable strategic calculation. And arguably, maybe that's the calculation the leadership is making. Um, or is moving towards making at the moment. There's a lot of reports about McDonald's kind of tea offensive with the city, right? And a lot of commentators say, well, you know, Labour's economic programme is really it's quite mainstream. It's very economically sensible. Yeah, public investment is going to deliver economic growth. Businesses like the idea of infrastructure investment. So, you know, if the, if the leadership plays its cards right, there's no reason why it should kind of face this backlash and you know 
uh, it should be able to kind of achieve the, the main things that it wants to achieve without kind of provoking a confrontation with those interests. But I think uh, we do need to be ready to debate what happens if that strategic calculation proves to be wrong or if that proves not to be the case. And I think this is where the example of Syriza is interesting, um, although it might seem to you know, be, be such a different situation or to have few parallels with, you know, with, um, with the UK's potential situation under a Corbyn government. Um, this sort of dynamic of trying to negotiate with a partner who is ultimately really not interested in negotiating with you and is really only interested in trying to crush you, right, and the kind of strategic dilemmas that that forces upon a government. And I think, um, there's a, for me, there's a good argument to be made that in the same way that Syriza found itself in that position with relation to the Troika, um, it's totally possible that a Corbyn government could find itself in that position in relation to the city. Right? The city has never been interested in the health of the UK economy, <laughs> we saw that in the run-up to the financial crisis, and it has every interest in avoiding a Corbyn government becoming an example of radical change across the world, including in the US and for Sandism. Um, and so the question, I think, for the movement, you know, if there is that kind of declaration of war, if we, don't, if we find we don't have a choice about when to, when to have that confrontation because the confrontation is forced on us, um, like, how does the movement respond? You know, not with this kind of, as I said, not with blind escalation, or kind of uh, just a kind of uninformed call to radicalism at any cost, but really engaging with the strategic reality of the situation and, and kind of developing real alternatives to the abandonment of the project. You know, both preemptively, what can we be doing now to erode and reduce the power of those interests so they're less powerful, uh, and reactively. So, if it comes to the crunch, um, what might we need to countenance to? avoid abandoning the project, things like capital controls or whatever. Um, and like really debating um, the practicalities, you know, like taking responsibility for debating the practicalities of how those alternatives might, uh, might work. And I think that's why it's so important that we start to debate this now, right, and that we start to raise the level of literacy in the movement to debate these questions now. Um, so what does that mean in practice? I'm hoping, again, that uh, Laura and Paul will, will talk about that, so I'm not going to say very much. I'm going to wrap up in a second, but I think it's things like popular education. And we've had a whole strand of events uh, this weekend on popular education. How do we kind of build a movement that's really able to not just engage, but to reach, you know, shape the ideas that are building this political project? Um, it means radical community organising, building a kind of strong and a deep social base up and down the country, communities up and down the country that can help to shift the, the balance of forces. Um, in a different direction, and it means building economic alternatives, you know, whether that's municipal energy companies like Robin Hood Energy in Nottingham, Bristol Energy in Bristol, uh, whether it's the Preston model in Lancashire, you know, uh, where we've got Labour councils in power, or whether it thinks that social movements can do to be kind of building the roots of the new economy that in and of itself is kind of shifting power um, towards democratic alternatives and eroding the, the ability of these vested interests to hold the economy to ransom. So these are all the kind of things that I think we need to be talking about now and recognising that, you know, as I said at the beginning, uh, our job is, is not just to get Corbyn into Downing Street. Uh, getting Corbyn into Downing Street is a means to an end of achieving change through a variety of means, including us doing all these things. And I think, you know, uh, not to be hubristic about it, but I think it really is a, a huge responsibility on the UK movement now to start engaging with these questions so that we can achieve the transformative change that we have the potential to achieve at this moment in time. Thanks.
even slightly terrified. <laughs> Although, I could just say I kind of agreed with all of that and then passed the mic on. <laughs> but then he'd only talk for longer, so... Um, <laughs> that, there's just one thing that's bothering me about this. Like The movement feels like it's a little bit in the dark. Is there a possibility of a bit more light out there and a bit less light over here? Oh, yay! Because sometimes it's lonely being the national coordinator of momentum and you want to know there's someone out there. Um, I kind of feel singularly ill-qualified to be up here because I think, I don't know if you're a historian anyway, that sounded very historically knowledgeable. You're like a minister, you're just a genius. Uh, you're a radical economist, journalist. And then I thought, no, actually, I should be up here, because the movement's also people who've got the right values, and it's people who've got their heart in the right place, and actually you don't have to be a genius to be part of it, you just have to step up to the plate. So I am ill-qualified to be up here on one hand, and on the other, um, I'm very part, proud to call myself part of whatever this thing is. And I do want to talk about values in a minute, because I think values and resilience uh, as well as economics and historical perspective and technical skills, but I think values and resilience, without those, the, the rest is, is not going to happen. But before I go there, I wanted a bit of audience participation. Um, I kind of would like to know who you are. Um, so, this is hands in the air time. How many of you are in the Labour Party? Oh. How many of you are in the Labour Party? Party pre-Corbyn. How many of you are Labour Party delegates, by the way? Oh, you are so wise, the rest of you. This is so much better than that. Um, how many of you are like Green Party or Socialist Party or some other party? Activists, campaigners, community organisers? Yeah. Who so far hasn't put their hand up? Okay, so what do you do? Um, uh, but that's good, that's already part of the answer to what the movement is, and it's great that so many of us are in the Labour Party, and I think it's really great that so many of us are in the Labour Party post-Corbyn, because actually, uh, I don't think the Labour Party isn't the movement, but it's the vehicle that the movement has got for the moment. I'm not tribally Labour, Labour. I'm in it for now, I joined the Tiddlywinks Club if it was going to deliver the same political agenda. And actually, after today, I might join the Tiddlywinks Club, because it's not been much fun in the other building. Um, we need to define what a movement is so that we can decide how to look after it. And I think the appeal of Corbynism, for me, was a very clear transformational political agenda and a sense of values and principle. And we need a very quick and urgent stop take of how we're doing on those things, because I know the essay question today was, you know, we're in government already, so don't talk about now, but actually we might really be in government very soon. So that future is kind of now. I mean, it could literally be at the end of this year. It could be March next year. It might be two or three years hence. But we may have literally 12 weeks to build the resilience and to do the values check that we desperately need to do because this government is, you know, it's crumbling and we're all kind of wishing and hoping that it does, but put your hands up if you're ever so slightly petrified that it might, and then it will be in charge. 
I'm scared about that prospect. And I want to know that there's lots of people around me and us. And what I really want to talk about then is, that, is where are we now? Like what is the health check of this movement at the moment? So I'm going to do the downsides first so I can end on a cheery note. Um, I don't think that this movement has reconciled it. Parts of this movement have not yet reconciled itself to other parts of this movement. So the fun and games that you're missing because you've had the common sense to come here rather than go to the Labour Party conference is an enormous debate that we're having at the moment about Labour Party democracy. It's been a very, very bruising day. Um, some of us have led a campaign to have open selections because we think that normal Labour Party members should be able to check, check, uh, choose their MPs. And it doesn't look like we will. <laughs> Some of us have tried to defend the very simple principle, as Matt Rapp from the FBU said this morning, that if one person thinks that they can decide to stand for the leader of the party, they should be able to stand for the leader of the party and not have to pass some mythical threshold or enter into the hallowed realms of the people who really get to decide, which isn't all of us, it's just five of them sitting in a cupboard somewhere. Um, we, we need to challenge all of that and we need to be honest that at the moment, our movement has got growing pains because it's grown incredibly quickly. In fact, we're retrofitting a movement to the leadership of a party, and that is really difficult. People say to us often, you know, how do you do it in momentum? And you know, how do we do the films and how do you do the social media? And we said, well, to be honest, it doesn't really matter how great your social media guy is if you've not got the right politics, and it's not really just about the films. But partly how we did it was because we cheated, because we were really lucky that someone held on to their values for 33 years despite being in Parliament and then despite everything thrown at us, we managed to get them elected. So that was the upside. The downside is we weren't ready. He wasn't ready and we weren't ready. And now we're retrofitting and we might have only got 12 weeks to carry on the retrofit. So I think part of the health check is being honest about the fact that we had these really, I, mean, I don't know, I don't have any kids but my sister tells me about hers and my nephew's 13 at the moment. Growing pains are not great. And they're really bad if you have like 18 years of growing pains in two and a half, which is what we've just gone through. Now, we've got to have a really profound discussion with our partners and friends and colleagues in the union movement, with the uh, Labour Party. We've got to get the Labour Party to talk to other parties. We've got to get the Labour Party to understand that a movement isn't lots of people going to eat. It is it going to them. Uh, we had a fascinating little discussion in our CLP recently about community organising. And we went around the room and everyone gave examples of what they did in community organising, which for me is part of movement building. And uh, the good folk at Clapham Town, I mean, they're great. I mean, I was hopeless. I had nothing to say. I've got no time. I basically work at Momentum and I sleep um, occasionally. But everyone else did loads of great things. They worked in a pupil uh, referral unit with children excluded from school. They worked in a community gardening centre. They worked with children with disabilities. They did all sorts of great community development work. They worked for tenants' rights associations. They worked on a housing regeneration project. They all listed all these things and said, and in the Labour Party. Well, there you go. The Labour Party should be all those things. You don't build a movement because you go to branch meetings every now and then and have pointless discussions about motions that no one's going to listen to anyway. So we've got a big discussion that we've got to have there about how we transform 
the party political centre of power in this movement, which is, for the moment, the Labour Party. I, I personally would love to be on more platforms with Caroline Lucas. I don't get how she counts less. Um, I think... You know, why aren't we having discussions about coalitions, about electoral reform, about pluralism? Why aren't we having discussions about discussions? You know, why do we all get into that party conference? And quite honestly, it's like back to the Blair days. It's a stage management exercise in making us all feel good and unified. Now, as, as you said, like, politics is messy. So let's be honest about the fact it's messy and it's complicated. And let's have, we know we're going to get hammered in the media anyway. It doesn't matter how much we try to stage manage it. They'll anyway find a chink of light. Well, then let's have the bloody debate. Given that they're going to pull us to pieces anyway for arguments that don't exist, why do we have the arguments that do exist? Like, why aren't we having a vibrant discussion at the moment about what we think about Brexit? The biggest, you know, wherever you were in this, there's no ignoring it, you know. And we're not, because we want to be loyal. Uh, and I say to people, you know, this sort of loyalty, it, it's the wrong kind of loyalty. Like, if your best mate's about to marry an idiot, the taxi driver can tell them. Uh, your colleagues might say, I'm not, not sure about that. Uh, yeah. The only person that can tell you about to marry an idiot is your best mate. Now, the best mates of this movement have got to be more honest about giving honest feedback to the leadership of this movement. And the leadership of this movement has got to be more honest about listening to it. We've got to find a way of having more civilised party political discussion when we fess up to the stuff that we don't know, when we are willing to learn from one another, and I completely agree with you about political education. It's a big gap at the moment. Uh, so, so that was a long whinge, wasn't it? I have not had much sleep for two days. But I think we have got to be honest. This movement, if it's going to win, it's got to be honest with itself. So on the plus side, what have we got? Well, we've got all of us. The fact that we are at the world transformed, and we dare to think about a world transformed. You know, this is bold, this isn't tinkering with Britain. It's wanting to transform Britain and well beyond. And what's brilliant for me about the world transformed is it's embracing internationalism. And the British left is terribly parochial. We're not going to do it on our own, whether we're in the EU or not. So I think that this is really great. I think the ideas that people like the world transformed are promoting is fantastic. The generosity of some of the people in our midst, organisations like Neon, whose mission is to do capacity building for leaders and help other people get there. That, that's brilliant. We need generosity. That's brilliant. So there is generosity in our movement. I think we are learning to cohabit a little bit. We probably need to do a little bit better at that. But funnily, you know, after two and a half years, this family's gone from a couple of kids to suddenly 15 and we haven't, you know, we've not thrown one another out, there's been no big evictions, we've, we've more or less bumbled along together. But we do, you know, we need to hang on to the successes that, that we have already had and not forget that until two and a half years ago it was, oh, how could I cut better and I could cut better than you and now we've got a party that's unashamedly anti-austerity. You know, before we had a party that just wanted to be on the UN Security Council, and now we've got an unashamed.
pro-human rights party. We've got a Labour Party conference which this week in its four priority ballots voted for by the membership is having a debate on Palestine rather than pretending that that, that doesn't exist. Notwithstanding the summer of shit that we've had, we decided that we would have a debate on Palestine at this conference, and good for us. So we're bold, and that's good. We've taken a lot of nonsense, and we've not caved in. Most of the time, we're still smiling. So there is quite a lot to celebrate. Um, I would really like to encourage all of those of you who aren't, uh, you know, who aren't yet hooked into the party to join it uh, and not to go to branch meetings but to get it out of itself. There's a great new community uh, development unit in the Labour Party which is going to be doing community organising work around the country and when you go to one of the training sessions you know it makes you think, it makes you think about yourself, how you view the world, makes you think about power and power relations and values and principles and stakeholders and understanding who's in your community and how can you understand where the problems are and go to it. Oh yeah, I forgot to finish the story about our CLP. Oh, so we went around the room doing this little thing about community organising. And then we talked about, um, I suppose I'm going to finish on this, going to problems rather than expecting them to come to us and you know, <coughs> sitting in some special place and expecting everyone to move to it. So we went around the room and talked about what everybody did in their community. Um, and I was amazed by the fact that community organising wasn't really part of your Labour Party membership. And then we discussed, well, what could we do in Clapham Town? And we got to the issue of food poverty. And I said, oh, well, you know, maybe we should be doing something with, with food poverty. And it shouldn't just be a food bank, because we can't be a, you know, a purely sort of charitable, philanthropic endeavour. But maybe we could have discussions about food poverty and explain, you know, how the vast majority of people in Britain who are using food banks actually have jobs. This is the working poor, which should not be possible in 2018 in Britain. And we could do that, and we could do some educational work, and we could support the local food bank. And half the room said yes, and the other half of the room said, oh, I've got an idea. Why don't we get a stall on Bent Street Market, put up the Labour Party banner, and get people to make donations? Well, if any of you have been to Venn Street Market, for a bunch of peas about this big, it would cost you £4.50. It's like one of these farmers markets that, you know, you've literally got to be a city, you know, working in the city to be able to afford to go to. And, and I just thought, this is, you know, we're halfway there. Like half the room got it, and the other half of the room thought that building a movement meant I was going to get, you know, having a stall, branded labour, where people could make their food donations rather than understanding that there are five brilliant women ten minutes around the corner who with no banner whatsoever, no PR, no marketing, no party badge, are just getting on with it. So we're kind of halfway there, but we have to constantly challenge ourselves, I think, about how we get the whole of the way there. Um, I, mean, I am optimistic because it's a rainy night in Liverpool and there's thousands of people across this city having discussions and you could all be doing other things, watching the final episode of The Bodyguard. Um, you could all be doing other things, and you've decided to dedicate your time and energy to this. So I am really optimistic, um, but we have got 12 weeks. So thanks very much.
Thanks a lot. Um, so, keep me to time, please. Um, I'll start by just telling a couple of stories about the two left governments that I've actually seen in office. Evo Morales, uh, in, in, two, in the, uh, 2006 is when I met uh, Evo Morales, the president of Bolivia, not long after he came to power, and the series of experience. Um, we went to interview Evo, and he said to me, I'm padlocked inside this palace. I got no power. He was only president. He didn't have the assembly with him yet. But the interesting thing was, we went in at 5 a.m., and it's this beautiful 18th century Baroque uh, palace in the Bolivia and La Paz, and um, with the, the picture of Simon Bolivar on the wall in a golden frame. And we were allowed, well, we weren't allowed, we just peeked through the door when he was getting ready. And there are, there are these presidential guards called Colorados in uh, Bolivia who were all recruited from the black population of um, Bolivia. And they wear pink uniforms, they look a bit toy town, to be honest. And Evo is going down the line, supposedly, he's the president, he's the head of state, um, inspecting them. They've got their weapons. And he's just having a joke with them. They're just all laughing. And of course, this is a daily ritual that's gone on since, you know, the Bolivar days. Um, but he just, and, and what it was, they were his only friends. Now, the other one is going into uh, the office of a very senior, not the Prime Minister, not you, because uh, Dimitris, I just, just should mention that when we knew each other, Tsipras sits here, he sits over there. That's what his job was. But it wasn't you, it was another senior minister. We went to, uh, to interview, a private interview with one of the senior ministers in Syria. Get that into the building, it's a shabby 1960s, you know, fourth floor, office floor. Go to the top floor, meet the senior minister, his team's around him. And it, you're a series of activists, you're a series of activists, you I know from politics, you're a journalist. Where's the civil servants? Civil servants are on the next floor, because we can't let them into this floor, because they all work for Germany and the IMF. The only friends this minister had were his own, were, were us, the equivalent of us, it'd be the us four, you know, um, running the minister. They couldn't actually, the point is it's great, it's friendly, it's nice. You can't pull a lever, there's no lever to pull. Because to pull the lever, you go down the next floor and say, hey guys, you want to do this? Oh, they can't do that. And that's what being a left government is like. And what I would urge you all to think about is this, because in both of those cases, Neither did the senior minister I'm talking about in Syriza, nor Evo, thought it was weird. They hadn't seen how powerless and isolated they'd become, in padlocked inside the palace. Now what can we do to prepare, prepare ourselves for that? I'm going to do a quick SWOT analysis in business where this thing, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, of where we are. The strengths are that we have, in the 2017 manifesto, for all my criticisms of it, too long, too detailed, we have a programme that would begin the end of neoliberalism in Britain. Now, that's nothing. That's not nothing. That's not a Labour-led programme. That's, that's the beginnings of a global transformation, because we are the fifth biggest country, we are a major former imperial power, we are the financial centre of the world. If we implement, uh, implement that programme, over a period of five to ten years, neoliberalism will be superseded by a different form of, and more fair form of capitalism. That's our major strength. We can cut through all of them, we'll be crying by the time we get through the weaknesses. 
The other major strength is a party of 540,000 people, two-thirds of which weren't members when Corbyn came to power. This terrifies the ruling elite, it terrifies Fleet Street, it terrifies the right wing of our party. And for, sometimes for good reasons, because you are an untested bunch of people. I had a lot of people surrounding me today telling me, you know, the white helmets in Syria were all, um, you know, CIA plants. There's some very interesting ideas in our movement that we have to understand and talk through, but, you know, if you're sitting next to the, as I was, the future defence minister of this country, that can be a bit unnerving. But overall, 540,000 people is good. The third thing, just to interrupt here, and I won't go any further on this issue, we have a solution to Brexit. We have a solution that's there either in what we've said already, the IPPR report uh, came out in December last year, is basically a solution. It's a soft Brexit. I think with the right leadership, we can come to it and we can heal this horrible divide that all of you in your communities are having to face. You know, the Tommy Robinson stuff, the, the closed Facebook group in Merthyr Tidville of 17,000 local anti-Labour anti people. Chuntering on about paedophiles, rape gangs, all of this is what we're up against. Brexit, solving Brexit could actually be a great strength in putting a lot of this right-wing plebeian reaction to bed. The weaknesses. I should do this like your Father Ted with your oh, list of enemies. It would drop down. Um, niche one, inexperienced ministerial teams. When we take over the Treasury with John MacDonald, two special advisors, a press guy, and some admin workers, all of them are excellent people, but that's it. Treasury's got what? Two and a half thousand workers. The government's got an economics team of 30 professional economists, all of whom will say on day one, we don't agree with your premise. We don't agree that spending one pound makes the economy grow by one pound to one pound fifty. We think it makes no point, it makes 50p. That's the IMF measure. We'll, and then what do we do about them? We can't persuade them. But the real, real problem is, they're PhD economists, one of ours is. We've got, they're very good, but there's only two people. What happens if one of them has a cold? What happens, what happens, you know, seriously. Now, why are we in that situation? Because we refuse to have secondees from the, from the city and from the, from the county seat business. By this time in the Ed Miliband administration, there were 27 odd people, roughly, seconded in and out of the Treasury, the treasury team and or informally informed, uh, involved in meetings with their Ed Balls from Ernst and Young, Accenture and all the rest. We're just not doing that, but it is real weakness. That's not for you to solve, but I, I think we, if you are a professional person in any time, you know, whether it's a prison governor or a, an administrator or an ex-civil servant, we're going to need you. The third, sorry, that's the first weakness, isn't it? God, I've not even got to the next one. The big one is the movement is not active. We're not a social movement. Now, in, in, in the Greek situation, you had something of a social movement. You had both 2011, the occupation of the squares, and by 2015, there was still something of a social movement left. Most of whom hated your guts because they're all anarchists and they'll barricade you and the rest of it. But many of whom I saw in advance of the crunch you had, what were they doing? They were assembling stockpiles of pharmaceuticals in local community centres to give out at the moment when the crunch came. That was a series of members, local people. We haven't got there with that yet. Um, I would also say Scotland. We, the Labour Party, have not yet tapped into 
the radical story of Scotland. I'm sorry to the Scottish comrades who are here. You know, being against the, another independence referendum is not going to go down well with the thousands of 16-year-olds who, for the first time, took part in the democratic process. I interviewed them. I met them. That referendum process converted people from, frankly, not only unionist but loyalist families in Glasgow to a progressive programme of an independent Scotland. And until we get our heads around Scotland, fine, England and Wales, Northern Ireland, but Scotland has got a radical story, and I'm not asking the Labour Party to sign up to the SNP's programme, I'm asking it to, to, to exhibit emotional intelligence towards the radical process that is underway there. I would say on the world transform, we haven't done a lot on Scotland in this time, uh, and that shows. The other thing, weakness, I think is Fabianism. You know, the Fabian Society, or the, no, it's a kind of Blairite kind of movement, but it's a good enough think tank. But Fabianism, Sydney and Beatrice Webb, uh, was a movement that said, faced with working class people beating up, men beating up their wives, abusing their children, poverty, we intervene from the top down. We'll take your children off you if you don't treat them right, but we will give you some welfare handouts. That's Fabianism. And there's been a debate in the Labour Party for a long time about the absence of alternatives to it, because there is a left Fabianism. Whenever I see Jeremy do all these mass rallies, I do worry about it, because left Fabianism says, you stand there and we'll deliver things to you. Uh, whereas it's often alternative, when Beatrice Webb went to the East End in 1889 when the dock strike was going on, she went, ah, these people who beat their wives up and they abuse their children and they drink all Sunday afternoon could take power. And that's what I didn't realise. Bottom-up socialism is not very strong in the Labour tradition, but it was in your tradition, Dimitris, uh, and I think that you gained from being able to draw movements at a critical time. Threats. <laughs> um, actually, we haven't theorised the state. You know, the, the, the last really good, I think the, the, the most profound work done on the nature of the state was done in the era of two people we both have, um, you know, who've influenced some of the people in this room. Ed Miliband's dad, also David Miliband's dad. Ralph Miliband, in, in, in discussion with Nikos Poulantzas, the, 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 the communist theorist in, in Greece. But that took place in the 1960s. We need to theorise the neoliberal state, because the neoliberal state doesn't stand above society like a night watchman. It's everywhere in the economy. What is Carillion? What is, uh, you know, all these outsourcing firms, private prisons? Uh, you, you, the MOD's establishment, you know, the army establishment, is even run by capital. So the state may, may be under neoliberalism, because it, the state is everywhere, the rule of law is probably greater than it was in the era when MI5 bugged and burgled Harold Wilson's government. Because it has, there has to be an appeal. What we've got, the Supreme Court, we didn't have that in the, in the era of Wilson. We have the Human Rights Act, and we have the Convention on Human Rights that we've signed up to, and we have a Supreme, sorry, Supreme Court Human Rights Act, and a rule of law culture, if you think about post-McPherson, post-Police and Criminal Evidence Act, we've got rule of law inside the executive power of the state. If you go to the, our, our drone pilots sitting in RAF Waddington in East Anglia, there is a phone on their desk as they zap members of Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan that they have to ring a lawyer. 
No, that's not a gestural thing. The lawyer is there, 24 hours a day. No. What does that mean? You might go to this very British coup reenactment, or if you see the very British coup uh, series, very interesting. But what this means is that the power of the rule of law inside the British state is so great, I think, that any coup has to happen before we come to power. And if you want to know what that coup will be, just read the headlines of the last six months. It's the delegitimization of us as we get towards power. That's the threat. Once in power, what will they do? Because what's the delegitimization there to do? It's to raise in the minds of everybody who matters, which is newspaper editors, TV news editors, um, city people, accountancy people, big consultancies, the big public affairs companies like Finsbury, uh, you, you know, to, to give all of the, the elite, that's the elite, to give them the rationale to say the British people have taken a very dangerous decision here. Um, they might not be able to be trusted with democracy, but because we can't do anything about it, because we're a, a rule of law governed state, let's play merry hell with them from below. And we saw we saw this with you in Syriza. You know what frightened some of your activists and members of movement? They've been saying, let's take up on the right. When you see 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 of these hedge funds and their daughters and sons dressed in their armies on the street calling for you to be overthrown, that could be quite frightening. That's the threat. I think in power it's the media, it's the markets, it's the alt-right, Steve Bannon and his money, and it's, um, it's also foreign states, foreign states meddling in our jurisdiction. But what's the opportunity? The opportunity is to end neoliberalism. And we can do it quite quickly because the state has so much power. Tony Blair, on achieving office in 1997, was told that he could appoint 33,000 people directly by his own decision, 10,000 a year, including the Lord Lieutenant of Lancashire and the boss of Ofcom and the boss of the BBC. There's probably even more. Now, I'm not saying sack them all overnight, but many of you could step up and be, I don't know what the Lord Lieutenant of Lancashire does, but it's probably quite a nice thing to be. <laughs> yeah. To finish, but what we could do, the easy wins that we could go for, it's in the power of ministers. Of course, legislation takes time. Civil servants will object and they'll ask for what's called a direction, which is then published. I said you, your decision was wrong, please don't do it, minister. You now have to publish this. There'll be one a day of them in the Daily Mail, leaked in, from day one. But what, could, what can we do? We can switch off the great privatisation machine. Not just by doing no more privatisations, but by actually saying the ethos of privatisation is over. We don't care whether this is 5p cheaper than that. Provide the healthy food in school kitchens. Provide good quality medicine. Stop rationing healthcare. That could be done on day one. End the mental torture of welfare recipients by the DWP. We can just say no more of these interviews. None. The people, I'm sorry, who are doing the interviews will have to find new jobs. There won't be any more mental torture Gestapo-style interviews of disabled and poor people. We can say... We can say, and this is one of my favourites, Sure, until we abolish tuition fees, you know, tuition fees will be zero next year, but it's still nine grand today um, in universities. Universities are still privatised, effectively. But we no longer direct, we don't, ministers no longer say, 
Medieval history is good because you might get a job in a bank. We say medieval history, genetic medicine, or just plain English literature is good because that, that's good in itself. An education system is good for educating human beings. And finally, win the information battle. You remember those horrific adverts, uh, some of you made, during the HIV epidemic, um, which you know, told gay men they were going to die. Do you remember that horrific sort of prejudice-building in public information campaign? In our youth, you used to have information campaigns about how to cross the road. I don't know if you remember them. Loop right, loop left, loop right, how to brush your teeth. No, I'm not saying we need them. But what about, as we restore, say, for example, refuges for women, which have all been cut, who are victims of domestic violence. We also, as Spanish left-wing uh, city governments have done, put a big poster campaign everywhere saying, against domestic violence, no toleration for it. Don't do it. Guys, if you're doing it, here's a, here's a centre you can go to. Here's some help you can take. And, as well, here, if you're a woman, what to do. Here's what you do. It, and where would we put that? In the two minutes after the end of the fucking bodyguard tonight on BBC. <laughs> As a public information tool, what's to stop us doing that? What's to stop us doing it about here's where most refugees come from? Here's why they make a contribution to our society. You know, this, the Nordic societies do this. Why won't we? If we do it, we'll win the information battle. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Paul. Thank you to the whole panel. If uh, those presentations haven't given you something to think about and chew on, I don't know what will. Um, we're going to open up and take questions and short comments. But before I take a round of questions, I think having heard what we've got on our mind here in the Corbyn uh, movement, uh, Demetrius maybe has a reaction um, about, about what he did. Okay, um, I don't know if I should say what I said to you. I think you worry too much. <laughs> uh, if you don't have the Troika um, above your heads, I don't think that the situation is going to be as tough uh, as you think. I mean, there are a thousand things to do. Uh, and uh, those things can immediately change the everyday lives of millions of people if you are uh, in the government. I mean, uh, Syriza during those three years with a very strict program, with a very strict supervision, um, with uh, exact targets, fiscal targets uh, that we had to um, uh, that, that we had to, to achieve. We actually legislated a ton of measures in favor of, uh, the, in favor of, uh, of, uh, of the many, as you uh, like to put it. Uh, I gave some examples about uh, our uh, uh, about uh, our initiatives for re-regulating the labor market. This is something that you need to start immediately after winning the election. Uh, 
the regulation of the market, that is, to put uh, specific limits to flexibility in the, in, in the labor market and is going to be one of the hardest battles that you're going to give, but you need to give it. And this is where you will have a very tough confrontation with what uh, Paul said, the elites. This is one thing. The second thing, um, uh, try to tighten the framework for collective bargaining. Third thing that we did, um, we immediately gave uh, the opportunity with legislation to uh, the second generation children uh, to become Greeks. We gave uh, citizenship to uh, thousands uh, of, uh, of people without, uh, without papers, some papers. They, 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 um, and this is something that you can do immediately. I, I don't know what the legislation is here about uh, immigrants who actually uh, happen to be born in uh, Great Britain, but in Greece. You couldn't take the citizenship if you were born in Greece. Now you can do it. Uh, the th another thing, we actually um, uh, recognized what, we, uh, what uh, in the LGBTQI movement is called gender identity. You are free to actually uh, choose, not exactly choose, but to uh, determine, determine your uh, gender identity. Uh, other things that we did, as I said, universal access to the healthcare system, free universal access to the health uh, healthcare system, even if you are an uninsured person. Uh, all those things, um, uh, other things that I, I, I need to uh, start uh, thinking about, uh, small details and bigger uh, issues, uh, which. Uh, I think are, are going to, to give you the, the, the push that you need when you come into government to, to go on with, uh, with the battles. Thank you very much. Alright, let's take a round of three questions. We'll start down here, back there, and at the front here. A question for Christine and for Paul. Um, Neoliberalism may not have been strong in the Tory party, but it was absolutely strong already in finance capital, which had been building its strength since 45 as a shadowy presence using the Cayman Islands and other places. So if you see Thatcher as a puppet for finance capital and with the, so many of the media behind her as well, then she did have a big head start going. And that relates to the problems I see with what Paul is saying. I, absolutely want to see everything that you want but so many state resources have been sold off how we actually can bring the state back into uh, public hands seems such a problem if you think of, of, of social care 90 percent of it has been outsourced whereas it used to be as late as the 90s 90 percent was actually in the hands of, of the public so you know we're going to have all those people like the wretched Branson suing once you try to get it back. So it's just going to be so hard, isn't it? Hi, uh, thanks. Good contributions. Um, this is going to be sort of a proposition that I want you to maybe come back on and see. Because if we're aiming at 
uh, Thatcher or Attlee style transformation. Those were both contingent on the international dimension. Attlee would not have succeeded without Bretton Woods, Thatcher would not have succeeded without the collapse of Bretton Woods. Um, and I don't really see an international conference like that happening anytime soon, given the rise of the far right and the left doing somewhat better in more countries than others. Um, so if we're not faced with that, that kind of prospect of change all coming all at once at the same time, it's going to be a longer fight. Um, the way you would do it last century would be go to the Soviet bloc, get their military and economic and diplomatic assistance, and then, I mean, there's very many flaws with that, but the anti-colonial movement that ended formal empire would never have succeeded without it, for example. That doesn't exist anymore. So how can we fight the sort of international institutions, other states, civil society that's against us, etc.? Um, the proposition is we do this on a domestic level through dual power of build our counter power and then move from there. How do you think we could maybe steal that or incorporate that on an international level and set up, you know, different institutions of global economic governments to build towards a different system? Um, so this is kind of a comment slash question. Um, I agree with what, what you said about the civil service, um, and I'm actually speaking to somebody who's worked in the civil service. And I think a big problem is the, the fast stream, is that all, most of the leaders in the civil service come through the fast stream uh, graduate scheme, and they're very selective about who they choose. It's a very elitist program. They favor people from Oxford and Cambridge. Um, they fail to recruit a single person from a black African Caribbean background for three years, and David Danach had a massive go at them for that. And I think the people who come through that system would be the biggest ones to block Jeremy and block his plan. Um, personally, I think the fast stream should be abolished because it's too, it's, it's too, much, too structurally unequal. Um, but I think you have to pretty much well, get people who think along more, more progressive lines in. Um, but ha I don't know, how, how would you do that in a, in a way that, how do you combat that power? That's what I'm trying to ask. Hi? Yes. Okay, good. Um, three really, really great questions. I'm so glad that they were all asked. Thanks, guys. Um, on, on neoliberalism being stronger in finance capital, I guess it's a cop-out to say like this is exactly the, the kind of contribution or the kind of question that I guess we want to prompt and see in the movement, and I don't really have the answers. I think like the, the posture that I would advocate is one of kind of realism, not fatalism. Um, so I absolutely wasn't trying to say, oh, you know, um, don't worry, guys. Uh, we're just as strong as Thatcher was in 79. Like, I, I, I do think probably we are in a weak position when you look at the relative strength of the labour movement now compared to the relative strength of finance capital in the 70s, right, which is the relevant analogy. Um, but when it comes to privatisation, I would argue right, like, that that task seemed as impossible in the and like, as challenging um, to the Thatcherites in the 70s as uh, renationalisation seems to us now, hence the Riddle Report, right? Because you did have huge spaces of the economy that were nationalised, um, and a lot of the unions that um, uh, that worked in those industries were hugely powerful. Um, and if you look at some of the commentary from the time and some of the way that factories talk about privatisation and the way that they then look back on it and kind of how, you know, what an amazing achievement it was that this is now accepted as something that, like, you know, it might possibly be sensible to do. Um, so I think, you know, it is easy for us to. There's a kind of default posture of fatalism on the left, basically, to just assume that like 
we have no resources at our disposal, so much weaker than the right ones, and I guess, yeah, maybe like Demetrius says, we worry too much, and we actually need to part of be part of strategy, right, is recognising where we do have strengths and like learning how to um, make the most of those. Um, on the international dimension, I'm especially glad that this was asked because as Joe knows, this is a bit of a hobby horse of mine at the moment, which we've been grappling with in the context of the book. Um, right, that, you know, I, I think it is completely possible that really in order to, to genuinely overcome these kind of strategic dilemmas of the kind that I think could face a Corbyn government in terms of the power of global financial markets, like we have to kind of face either, um, but we are going to need new global governance regimes um, on things like you know, exchange rates, currency markets, uh, whether it's take, you know, taking on global financial markets and tailing speculative trading um, through to things like um, trade, you know, which is obviously governance of trade is, is increasingly a massive issue like Trump trade wars and Brexit and everything. And I think this is something that, you know, maybe because the debate can often be very polarised and toxic on the left, we're really bad at talking about. Um, and I think we really need to learn to start talking about it because this is where our politics is. It's one of the big questions in, in global politics right now is this kind of backlash against globalisation, right? And I think the left needs to find a way of sort of owning that in a way that, that doesn't give quarter to sort of racist nationalism. Like how do we build a politics that is open to people but is close to big money and that provides new democratic governance mechanisms to control big money? And actually, like in the same way, the more Pellerin society, one of the really striking things about it is how international it was. Like what are we doing now on the left to build this kind of international um, exchange of ideas and like uh, building international alliances that could really form the seeds of a new global system. Um, and finally, on the civil service factory, I'll leave Paul to say more about this. I've probably talked for too long already. Um, I think one of the interesting things about this is that this is something that Thatcher faced when talking about strengths and weaknesses, right? Like, the civil service was deeply Keynesian when Thatcher came to power, um, and she absolutely hated them and went to war on them in a very serious way. Um, and I'm not suggesting that a Labour government should go to war on the civil service, I think that would be a mistake, but I do think that like, a you know, very deep and intentional programme of civil service reform and state reform um, to kind of embed a new way of doing economics into government is, is really essential. But if you want to know more about what I think about that, you'll just have to read the book, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, um, you're the expert, but I was a fast-trained civil servant, so there is some small hope that in there, I mean, obviously there was that good fast stream when I was on the hard shoulder, because um, the rest of them are now permanent secretaries, so there's fast and, you know, and not so fast. But there is some hope in there, because some of those people could be earning five times more, or six times more, or seven times more working in the city. So I think we have to open our minds a little bit to the fact that it might not all be that bleak, but on the structural issue, I completely agree with you. Um, massive issues around diversity. But I think this is a broader question about what we value in education. And part of the answer to that problem is about now. And a bolder uh, overhaul of the education system. Because how is it that you get X amount of points to join the civil service based on how good you are at Latin when you're 18? And this is a plague, you know, league tables, the commodification of education, the fast tracking of everything. You know, there's a thing called frontline. I don't know if any of you are social workers. Yeah. Okay, so the frontline social work scheme, there's me and my two mates. So I got in the civil service because I'm terribly middle class and had a, you know, parents who maybe do my homework and kind of got good A-levels. I could get in the frontline social work scheme. I'd be a terrible social worker. My two best mates, one of them from a working class family, one of five, first person to go to university, Plodded away through school, didn't do that brilliantly. Um, 
went back to education as an adult learner, did fantastically, didn't get in the frontline social work scheme because the levels weren't good enough. My next mate, head of child protection at a major children's charity, worked with abandoned street children in Africa, kids with HIV in Asia, abandoned children in Bulgaria, didn't get in the social work fast stream because she, her A-levels weren't good enough. Now, what is that about? Now, we could change that on day one. You know, we could just decide to revalue what we think has value. Um, so I kind of with you, but in there, there are some nice civil servants as well. Maybe so, um, a good summary of the, the problem, and it's not to do with this, there is a problem of the civil service class structure, and there is also a problem of the, of the way certain elements of neoliberalism have been written into structural, the structure of the state. One example is value for money. What's the, you know, it's, not, it's value for money to give Carillion a, a contract but not uh, allow a council to do the work itself. Then you look where, and, and the civil service could stop you doing it. They say, no, we advise against it, Minister, because you're now going against value for money. All right, who run the value for money? Uh, um, Criteria. Turns out it's Gordon Brown in 2004, and it's there sitting in the Treasury. So on minute one, you go in and you change it. Then everybody else has to deal with your value for money criteria, or you can remove it. Um, but then the problem is, there's another arm of the state, the National Audit Office, which doesn't work to the Treasury's value for money, it has its own, who appoints the boss of the NAO and the Queen. There's privy, in the Privy Council. There's never been a conflict between the two because everybody's on the same page. It's the same story in the central bank. You had a big problem with your central bank, but you didn't really have a functioning. Yeah, exactly, central bank. And he still managed to screw you over, the one who'd had no power. But, um, but we have a very powerful central bank. Now, what do central bankers do? I've been able to meet one or two of the key six central bankers in the world. And what they do is they meet every six weeks and decide everything in the world. They, there's no conspiracy theory here, you know, whatever. They are ultra-powerful. Technically, their mandates are all about maintaining, maintaining exchange rates and uh, the stability of financial systems, but the intelligence they share is about everything. Now, we would, if Mark Carney wants to go on doing it, be brilliant, but the remit would be, we're not playing the game anymore of you guys all administer global capitalism. Irrespective of the national programs of your own people, you, you know, we'll want our central banker to go in and speak to the boss of the Fed, the boss of the uh, Bank of China, the boss of, of, of the uh, Bundesbank and the ECB and say, we're not playing this game anymore. From now on, independent though we are, still as the Bank of England, we will be pursuing a policy of growth, social justice and zero carbon energy. And that will be probably the biggest, there is a technical word for this in English, I'm sorry, Dimitri, um, head fuck. There will be the biggest head fuck ever for, no, no, we have to be careful about the way we do that. We don't want to blow the system apart, but we do want to, to change. And this brings me to the final thing about the, your question, um, about Bretton Woods, etc. So, Bretton Woods was the foundation of the post-war order, it was a system of interlocked uh, currencies and also um, in economic programs, Thatcherism, etc., was the occupation of most countries by the IMF and the World Bank. We will have a seat on the, I on the IMF board, on the World Bank board, uh, in a way you did, to be honest. And, and what we need to do there is to say, the game's up. 
we announce the start of a new regime in the, in, the, in the history of capitalism, which will be production for high productivity, low work, high leisure, high social welfare in the West, in the West, in the developed world. Right? That's what we're going to do. Now, um, does anybody else want to join them? Um, and, and we, you know, maybe this horrific uh, bunch of racists in Italy uh, who run the government, racist and horrific though they are, might say, well, actually, that's what we've been banging on about as well. And out of an alliance of convenience, I think we should call a new Bretton Woods. Um, it should be a, you know, Cricklewood or whatever um, <laughs> conference. Um, and, and invite all the countries of Southern Europe, even though under the suzerainty of the ACB, though they are, they're still sovereign countries, they can still talk to us, they can still come. And in fact, this is what JFK's did at the famous London Economic Conference uh, of, of 1932, I think it was. It failed. But the, the, the coalition government, the national government that Keynes was advising, did try and, and sort of stabilise an order and progressivity to stop fascism. It failed. But you can always try. Right, I think we're coming towards the end, so we're going to take a last round of questions and then we'll close it out with the panel. Uh, there was, I think, a lady on the second row there in orange, is that right? No? Behind. Yeah, third row there in the hand. Yes. Yeah, and then gentleman standing up, and then we need to take someone from the back over here. Gentleman with the mustache. I saw such nonsense going on in education. It used to be joyous. And now suddenly, they either go from one thing or the other. Uh, people in the past were skilled and skilled create jobs. You speak into the microphone, sorry. And good products produce wealthy countries and well-made, well-crafted products of any type. And this idea that everyone should have a degree uh, my, my degree was an art degree. Originally, the, the, the artists in the 50s, like John Brackley, did art was seen as outside of the degree thing, because we think in a slightly different way. And now that oh God, we haven't trained enough engineers, we haven't trained enough scientists. They, they dart from one thing to another. It's an absurdity. What about the bricklayer? What about the journeyman? What about the person that works in tech? You need a diversity and, and an appreciation of a broad range of skills. Great. Whether that's in hospitals, it's absolutely got to happen. Or all, all your ideology will, will just crumble apart. Thank Te you. Teachers are leaving the profession in droves because of the likes of go Tory governments. Thank I'd you like very to much. say that, thanks. Yeah, yeah. Well, just to be really quick, um, we do have to be honest as well about Syriza because the truth of the matter is Syriza is now implementing austerity more privatisation than ever before. It capitulated completely to the institutions. Now, I understand it's a dilemma, but people in Greece didn't just vote. They mobilised on the street. They were up for a fight against austerity. And democracy has been completely destroyed on that question by the European institutions. And if the left is unwilling to rupture, as the radical right are, if they're unwilling to rupture with the European institutions, then it can, then it can happen again. And the truth of the matter is, that Syriza, I organised demonstrations in solidarity uh, with Syriza and the Greek people. The truth is now it's a defeat. We just have to be honest about that. 
And now the eyes of Europe are on this loop, are on Corbyn. I support Scottish independence, I'm not in the Labour Party, but I'll tell you this, the whole of Europe now is looking at this movement, at the attacks on this movement, and thinking to themselves, we need a Corbyn government. And think about the idea of a Corbyn government outside of the EU on a Brexit agenda which puts jobs, which put people first, before the transnational corporations, before the institutions. That could have been the start of an alliance with Greece, had you not been so committed to the European institutions. Thank you. Um, what lessons can be drawn from other party, from other governments left in, say, New Zealand or the Iberian Peninsula? Yeah, um, I don't think that uh, a total rupture with the European institutions uh, would have been possible back in 2015. I explained the reasons why. Uh, right now, the situation in Greece, after we exited the memoranda, is uh, quite different. Uh, we're trying to actually um, implement uh, a political and social and financial and economical agenda which is quite similar with the agenda that right now the Labour Party has. We uh, finished, uh, we uh, <clears throat> tried to renegotiate uh, about uh, privatizations and uh, during the last three years I don't think that any uh, large privatization has uh, taken place in Greece. So I think that this whole idea about the government doing cuts and privatization is uh, a, a distortion of uh, reality. Uh, the main issue right now for us is that we still uh, uh, that uh, we're still facing the same problems that you face actually the media war, which is an everyday uh, 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 normal day has uh, four or five pro provocations from the big media all over the country, which is something that you also have to face uh, here. And this is not something that is going to stop after you become the government. It will be even uh, more uh, aggressive, uh, the, the, the stance of the media towards you. Uh, this started after 2012, uh, when we actually became major opposition. Uh, and uh, escalated uh, during the referendum and right now the situation is quite similar as it was three years ago. I mean the, the media war is still going on with fake news, with um, um, distortion of uh, reality, with uh, things that we are trying to um, address every day. Um, every single, and I will give you only but one example, how this actually um, uh, in a way, reflects the the, um, uh, the 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 stance of the political elites towards Syriza in every single um, important uh, crime that we have. There is always one paper which will find that a, a crime, I mean a homicide or, uh, I don't know, an armed robbery or whatever, they will always find that this is somehow connected to someone from the government. Uh, last time was, uh, I, I have this um, uh, very, uh, yeah, um, uh, 
very funny incident that we had a boat which crashed into another boat uh, back in 2016 and uh, it caused the, f uh, the, the lives of four people uh, at the exact uh, at the uh, exact next moment uh, there were fake news all over the media that in the boat which crashed and caused the deaths of uh, four people uh, were two ministers of Syriza. This is the way that uh, the, 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 the uh, propaganda of uh, the major media uh, mechanisms in Greece is going on and this actually reflects the true stance of the political elite which, and the economical elite which should not uh, change in the next few years. Thank you very much. Without wanting to sort of disappear down the rabbit hole of debate about the Syriza experience, um, I think you know it, it's a fair point and one that I think we do need to acknowledge. Right, the Syriza has delivered good things, but it was not able to deliver on the, the core of its program that it was elected on, right, which was anti-austerity, and that has been hugely demoralising and demobilising for the movement. Right, everyone acknowledges that, and so you know. From a Corbyn government perspective, obviously, the, the objective is not just to get into government and achieve some good things, it's to achieve a transformative shift in our political economy. And if we can have a debate about how relevant the lessons of Syriza are to that, right? Like, would, was the Syriza experience just the result of kind of overwhelming institutional pressures that they were between a rock and a hard place and there was no other course? Or could there have been an alternative? You know, um, that's a debate that we can have. But I think, you know, for today's purposes, one of the things that it kind of illustrates is that. Um, once you have a kind of radical insurgent movement that goes into government, um, the government and the movement necessarily have to play different roles, right? They operate according to different logics. Like governments operate according to the logic of tough choices within the realm of political possibility. Movements operate according to the logic of big picture utopian visions and their job is to push and shape and shift the window of political possibility. Um, right, and Corbyn so far as an insurgent opposition leader um, has kind of been very successful at uh, shifting the window of possibility in the UK, right, to, to like reopen questions of um, anti-austerity politics, of public ownership, but a Corbyn government wouldn't be able to play that role in the same way, right? It's not, it's not within a government's power. It's not the government's job to do that, and so that will then become the role of the movement, um, right, to kind of shift and, and create that window of political possibility, whether it's through defending the government and, and creating the kind of social forces at its back that can. Um, give it the strength to, to carry through its program, or when necessary, holding it to account for not delivering its program. You know, and that's the, the kind of terms in which the movement needs to start conceptualising this role, I think. So two things I was thinking about before anyway, media and education. So on the media, I agree with everything you said, um, and there's a response that each of us can have, which is to just call it out. So I'm going to start now. This morning, I did the paper review on the Mars show. I'd never done it before. I was quite nervous. They cover you with makeup and do your hair, and you kind of get in there thinking, oh, blimey. Um, tiny little sofa, give you all the papers. I realised I was middle-aged and couldn't actually read anything, and it wasn't going to be a very good look on television doing this to try to see what the bloody paper was. But before you go in, some wise chap from the Green Party, or formerly from the Green Party, gave me some very wise advice, which was that you should negotiate with the people who run the show. Because I'd always just thought, you know, you pinch up and give you a paper, you'd always pinch a little story about that. Anyway, I remembered that this morning, and I went in, 
I'd run the press team of Labour and I'd talk to the Momentum guy and I was going to go in there, I was going to talk about two policy initiatives which came out last night. One is about workers on boards, which is about the democratisation of the economy. Fantastic. John McDonnell, I mean, he really is churning it out and, and hats off to him because he's got about three people in his team. So great policy. Um, and the second was about uh, tax on uh, second homes and the reinvestment of the money made, 560 million, into services particularly destined for homeless people, um, but particularly for the families uh, with children who are homeless, of whom there are 120,000 in this country, which is a, a national embarrassment. Anyway, get my little late briefing, I go in there. First of all, they want me to talk about the Observer, because it's got the most complicated story for Corbyn on Brexit, so I battle away and I get to talk about the mirror, then, you know, there's this little to and fro, and when it's all agreed, I'm going to talk about a bit of Brexit and a couple of other things, and my two policy issues. It's all agreed. Get in there, sit on the sofa. They took the bloody stories off, they took the papers off the table, and they took the stories off the programme. So did any of you hear anything about those two policy things? Like, you know, call it out, first thing. Second thing, finance the new media. You know? And then, either get educated, or educate. So, if you think you know stuff, at the end of today, commit that over the next 12 weeks, which is what we've got, you're going to find someone who doesn't know that stuff. Because that's the way we're going to do it. Finance organisations like the World Transformed, which is now committing itself to an ambitious programme of political education, you know, people keep saying momentum should do it, we can't do everything, we, there's not enough hours in a day. You know, give some money to TWT, put your name down on a list to be a speaker. You live in Mansfield, you know about economics, great. Six people in a pub talking about economics, that is how the world will be transformed. The other thing I would like people to take away is what is to do what I'm going to do now, which is on the off chance that anybody happens to be videoing this or live streaming it, is from now on speak beyond this elite uh, protective bubble that is around us and speak beyond the movement itself to the people. Because whatever you say about Syriza and Tsipras, that's how they got into power, by speaking. And remember what their slogan was, hope is coming. Now what does that mean? If we say to ourselves, hope is coming, to you, many, many public servants or long-time trade unionists or student activists, it means something idealistic. To the person standing at the aisle in Tesco waiting at five o'clock to see whether any goods with yellow labels come, which are out of date so they can then buy and feed their children, hope is coming means something very, very different. And that is why, in general, they don't believe it. They, because they hear it again and again from soft soap politicians, from people in their everyday lives, things will change. They never change. All it means, all neoliberalism has offered the ordinary people since 2008. Before 2008 they said, things will be like this only better. Since 2008, they just say, things will be like this forever, only worse, year on year on year. And that's what so many people, when you go to a food bank, when you go to the door, the school gate, see the young mums, and you go to, uh, to visit pensioners in, in, in care, and you go to the care workers, they just believe it's going to be like this 
this forever, only worse. And we will never break through that by words. We will break through it by actions. Because the first time they see something actually change, they'll say to each other, oh yes, it can change. And the idea that hope is coming to their lives will do something. If you're going to study one thing, study the Paris Commune of 1871, when the wretched of the earth, when, yes, the sex workers and the street criminals and the poorest shanty dwellers, people who are looked down on, went to the streets and took power. Now, I'm not telling you to do a revolution, but it will feel like a revolution just to have a democratically elected government committed to the basic principles of social justice and for, to translate it into day one action for the mum in Tesco's, for the pensioner waiting for their pension, for, for workers whose lives are full of coercion. Don't underestimate this. Working class people live with the threat of being fined, of being done over if you work on the construction side. I, want, I don't want, just want to see us pass laws. I want to see Corbyn, McDonald, Angela Rayner, you, me, down to Starbucks, down to a construction site, bleary-eyed, because we've just won, and say, put up a little notice, from now on, everybody on this workplace has union rights. Take it from there. Actually, in conversations with the World Transformed about being able to continue these conversations throughout the year. Let's all thank the panel. I think you'll agree they've been spectacular. Thank you all. Now it's time to the public.